It was 1 a.m. on a Saturday morning somewhere near 50th Street when the yellow and black checkered New York City cab stopped at one of those city stoplights that takes forever to change. That intersection being one of many that were notorious in those days for muggers who would rush the cabs, throw open the doors, and, grabbing the occupants, threaten them to hand over their wallets, or they would kill them. These were hardened 19- or 20-year-old kids with switchblades who had learned that people would throw money at them for a chance to come out of this without getting stabbed or dragged out of the car and beaten. It was a 60-second robbery and an easy piece of change if you picked the right cab. Like wolves preying upon the weak, they only went after the ones that looked wealthy, old, and almost always defenseless. Older people were the target of choice, and that was the case that night, when two muggers spotted a well-dressed man who looked to be in his late 70s in the back seat of a yellow cab, just now stopping. Seeing no nearby threats, they sprang toward both sides of the cab and threw open the rear doors while the cab driver watched in frozen terror, and as one of them yanked the 75-year-old man out, the other, finding his side empty, came round the back of the cab and approached the back of the intended victim. Having taken only seconds, The whole shakedown was designed to create terror in the victim and produce a wallet and maybe a good watch and a gold ring, if they were lucky. But as soon as the old man got his footing, something very shocking happened. The old man exploded into action, sending a right uppercut into the jaw of the mugger who faced him, the punch nearly lifting his attacker off the ground and shattering his jawbone with a sickening crunch. And then, turning quickly, He threw two left jabs into the face of the attacker who stood for a split second in shock behind him, the jabs coming blindingly fast and with power, those immediately followed by a powerful right to the solar plexus, which caused this attacker to bend over and right into a crashing left to the jaw, which dropped him like a sack of cold concrete. Lights out. The two would-be muggers were laid out on the curbside, all in a matter of seconds. The old man adjusted his jacket and looked down at his knuckles, which he knew had taken a punishment that he'd have to pay for in the days and weeks to come, smiled, and climbed back in the cab. He then asked the cab driver if he was okay, and got a shaky yes. Well, drive then, he said. A siren was sounding a few streets away. The cab driver hit the gas, and when the old man turned to look back, the last thing he saw in his rearview mirror was the two thugs lying half on the street, half on the curb in the lamplight. A few years later, he would share that memory of looking out that back window of the cab with his daughter as she and he worked to compile his autobiography. New York City has its share of stories and legends and its beloved heroes. One of those heroes, and one boxing sports fan still talk about with reverence 100 years later, is Jack Dempsey. Some say he was the greatest heavyweight fighter that ever lived. Some say he was the hardest hitter. Some say he was a bloody killer and a bum for the way he went after his opponents. He was as merciless in the ring as a shark with a fresh scent of blood in the water. They even had to create a new boxing safety rule to keep Dempsey from mauling his opponents when they were down. When the ref signals them today to go to their corners, you can thank the Manasseh Mauler, Jack Dempsey, for that. That was his nickname, the Manasseh Mauler, given to him when he was still a teen who walked into bars in and around Manasseh, Colorado, and challenged anyone there to take him on for money. That was a long time ago. Then he fought as a light heavyweight, and then heavyweight in prize rings. 75 prize fights, 54 wins, 44 knockouts, 
and six losses. Two of those losses to the same man. And that second loss only because of a controversial long count given to that man whose name was Gene Tunney. And that was Dempsey's last fight, that grudge match against Gene Tunney. Tunney, who always dressed like a dandy and quoted Shakespeare, he even acted Shakespeare on stage. They called him Gentleman Gene. He was all spit and polish on the outside. But in the ring, Gene Tunney was as fast and strong as just about anyone Dempsey had ever faced. Just about meaning that there were better. But those were guys that never got the notoriety that Tunney did. Guys like Billy Miskey. Getting known in this sport was all notoriety and hype. That got people worked up. Worked up enough to want to pay to see the fight. And when the hype for the first Dempsey-Tunney fight started, it was the matchup of the century. Jack Dempsey, the Manassa Mauler. An uncouth Mick, tough as wang leather, raised out west as a brawler, carrying rumors that he'd killed a guy in a fight. Aggressive, mean, and brutal in the ring. Against Gene Tunney. Polished, well-spoken, generally quiet and reserved. But a tough Marine who had seen action in World War I. A changed man in the ring, muscled, fast and smart, and most of all, able to take a punch, with a stomach like iron and a jaw able to take it. And so many other memories. When Dempsey fought Carpentier on July 2, 1921, at Boyle's 30 Acres in Jersey City, New Jersey, that match had generated the first million-dollar gate in boxing history, with a crowd of 91,000 watching the fight. The promoter, Tex Rickard, wanted it at the polo grounds, but the governor of New York did not want that fight in his state, so they settled for New Jersey. A 34-acre plot was chosen. The owner of the property brought in 400 carpenters and just as many laborers, and in a week, a huge stadium with seating for 80000 was built at a cost of a quarter of a million dollars, and that ended up paying a nice profit. Though it was deemed the fight of the century, experts had anticipated a one-sided affair for Dempsey. There was no TV in those days, no pay-per-view. It was newspapers and eyewitnesses with a new kicker that generated some real excitement, radio. Radio pioneer RCA arranged for live coverage of the match via KDKA, making that event the first national radio broadcast. Radio was on its way, and this fight sealed the deal with the public's love for radio forever. It was the first billion-dollar gate ever for professional boxing. It must have cost them 12 bucks a pop, which was a lot of money back in 1921 for a ticket. But World War I had ended a few years ago. America had staked out her place in the world. Money and jobs were rolling in 1921 and people could pay for entertainment. And few things could top a prize fight. As the cab emptied him out and rolled away, Dempsey walked up to the steps of his home, paused long enough to disentangle the keys in his pocket from his knuckle duster that he'd been carrying for years for just such an event, and smiled. He knew his knuckles would pay for this tomorrow, but it was worth it.
moment for Jack. He hasn't been in there in eight years. Cowboy Luttrell is introduced to the audience. And then Jack Dempsey. Jack receives a great ovation when he's introduced. Jack Dempsey, former world heavyweight champion, comes out for round one in the dark trunks with the white stripe. Cowboy Luttrell is wearing the all-dark trunks. Jack goes right to work with that crisp left hook. Jack is all over Cowboy Luttrell here at the very beginning of the fight. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It's time for a good story. The story of a prize fighter, father, and restaurant owner that became a living legend in his adopted city of New York. And his name is spoken today by anyone with any knowledge of prize fighting. His real name was William Harrison Jack Dempsey, born June 24, 1895, in Manassa, Colorado, and later nicknamed Kid Blackie and the Manassa Mauler after he became a professional boxer who competed in the ring for 13 years, 1914 to 1927, and reigned as the world heavyweight champion for seven of those years, from 1919 to 1926. He was as much a cultural icon of boxing in the 20s as Tiger Woods has become to golf. Pick any recent decade. If you're talking about golf today, sooner or later, Tiger Woods' career, his wins and losses, his ups and downs, on and off the green, will become a part of the conversation, just as Jack Dempsey's career, his wins and losses, his ups and downs, and some of those losses very controversial, were common subjects of conversation 100 years ago. Dempsey's aggressive fighting style and exceptional punching power made him one of the most popular and controversial boxers in history. He's ranked 10th on the Ring Magazine's list of all-time heavyweights and 7th among its top 100 greatest punchers, while in 1950, the Associated Press voted him as the greatest fighter of the past 50 years. He's a member of the International Boxing Hall of Fame and was in the previous Boxing Hall of Fame. Ring Magazine took a poll in 1971, and here were their top 20 heavyweight fighters of all time. The poll evaluated 20 champions dating back to the dawn of gloved heavyweight championship fights. The fighters are John L. Sullivan, James Corbett, Bob Fitzsimmons, James Jeffries, Jack Johnson, Jack Dempsey, Gene Tunney, Joe Lewis, Rocky Marciano, Sonny Liston, Muhammad Ali, Joe Frazier, George Foreman, Larry Holmes, Mike Tyson, Evander Holifield, Riddick Bowe, Lennox Lewis, Vitaly Klitschko, and Vladimir Klitschko. A fairly recent ESPN article written by Graham Houston named the hardest hitters of all time, and Dempsey came in seventh among these notables. One, Mike Tyson. Two, Sonny Liston. Three, Joe Lewis. Four, George Foreman. Five, Rocky Marciano. Six, Ernie Shavers. Seven, Jack Dempsey. Eight, Joe Frazier. Nine, Lennox Lewis. And ten, Max Baer. You can agree or disagree, but Dempsey's name will probably remain on any similar list you try. Born William Harrison Dempsey, the son of Mary Celia Smoot and Hiram Dempsey in Manassa, Colorado. Jack grew up fast in mining towns in Colorado, West Virginia, 
and Utah, his father on the move for any work he could find. His family's lineage consisted of Irish, Cherokee, and Jewish ancestry, but mostly Irish, and he was born to fight, as some would say. Following his parents' conversion to Mormonism, Dempsey was baptized into the LDS Church in 1903, following his eighth birthday, what they called the Age of Accountability, according to the Mormon doctrine. Because his father had difficulty finding work, the family traveled often and wanted to help out with a rough family situation, Dempsey dropped out of elementary school to work, which many kids did back in those days to help support their families, until he was 16, at which time he left home. Due to his lack of money, he frequently traveled on and underneath trains and slept in hobo camps. Desperate for money and learning some fighting skills while on the road, Dempsey would occasionally visit saloons and challenge for fights, saying, I can't sing, I can't dance, but I can lick any SOB in the house. If anyone accepted the challenge, bets would be made. According to Dempsey's autobiography, he rarely lost those barroom brawls. But when he did, he learned. For a short time, Dempsey was a part-time bodyguard for Thomas F. Kearns, president of the Salt Lake Tribune and son of Utah's Senator Thomas Kearns. When his name started to become known, Dempsey often fought under the pseudonym Kid Blackie, although during his stint in the Salt Lake City area, he went by Young Dempsey. Much of his early career is not recorded, and what we do know is found in the Ring Record Book as compiled by Nat Fleischer. He first competed as Jack Dempsey in the fall of 1914 in Cripple Creek, Colorado. His brother, Bernie, who often fought under the pseudonym Jack Dempsey, this is a common practice of the day in the fighter's admiration of middleweight boxer and former champion, whose name happened to be Jack Nonpareil Dempsey, had signed to fight veteran George Copeland. Upon learning that Copeland had sparred with Jack Johnson, and given Bernie Dempsey was nearing 40 years of age, he wisely decided to back out of that fight, and he substituted his brother, Jack, still unknown in eastern Colorado, as Jack Dempsey. The fans at ringside immediately knew this was not the man they'd paid to see. According to Dempsey's autobiography, the promoter became violently angry at this last-minute switch and sailed into the two brothers barehanded, threatening to stop the fight. Copeland himself, who outweighed Dempsey by 20 pounds, that being 165 pounds to 145 pounds, upon seeing Dempsey's small stature in the ring, warned the promoter, I might kill that skinny guy. The promoter reluctantly permitted the fight to commence, and in his first outing as Jack Dempsey, the future champion downed Copeland six times in the first round and twice in the second. From there, it was a battle of attrition. He wrote, Neither Bernie nor I had taken into consideration the high altitude at Cripple Creek until a last knockdown of Copeland in the seventh moved the referee to make the then unusual move of stopping the fight once Copeland regained his feet. According to Dempsey, in those days they didn't stop mining town fights as long as one guy could move. This trial by fire carried with it a hundred dollar purse. The promoter, angered at the switch pulled by the brothers, had laid no promised side bets. And the promoter's response was, and even if I did win anything, I wouldn't give you anything. So Jack earned nothing but experience, which was to prove valuable in time. Such lessons were hard, but fighting was something Jack Dempsey did well. Following the name change, 
Dempsey won six bouts in a row by knockout before losing on a disqualification in four rounds to Jack Downey. During this early part of his career, Dempsey campaigned in Utah, frequently entering fights in towns in the Wasatch Mountain Range region. He followed his loss against Downey with a knockout win and two draws versus Johnny Sudenberg in Nevada, this time resulting in a four-round draw. Following these wins, Dempsey racked up ten more wins that included matches against Sudenberg and Downey, knocking out Downey in two rounds. These wins were followed with three no-decision matches, although at this point in the history of boxing, the use of judges to score a fight was often forbidden, so if a fight went the distance, it was called a draw or a no-decision, depending on the state or county where the fight was held. The last man standing took home the money. After the United States entered World War I in 1917, Dempsey worked in a shipyard and continued to box. Afterward, he was accused by some boxing fans of being a slacker for not enlisting. This remained a black mark on his reputation until 1920, when evidence produced showed he'd attempted to enlist in the U.S. Army, but had been classified 4F. After the war, Dempsey spent two years in Salt Lake City, bumming around, as he called it, before returning to the ring. Among his opponents as a rising contender was fireman Jim Flynn, the only boxer ever to beat Dempsey by a knockout when Dempsey lost to him in the first round. Although some boxing historians still believe the fight was a fix, and another well-known opponent was Gunboat Smith, formerly a high-ranked contender who had beaten both world champion Jess Willard and Hall of Famer Sam Langford. Dempsey beat Smith for the third time on a second-round knockout. Fireman Jim Flynn's real name was Andrew Ciariglione, and he was a native of Hoboken, New Jersey, who fought his first recorded fight in 1899. Beginning his career in earnest by 1900, he was working as a railroad fireman in Pueblo, Colorado at the time, and that's obviously where he got his name. It was a lot easier to remember than Ciariglione, and the name stuck. Fireman Jim Flynn. He's still remembered by boxing fans today as the only guy ever to knock out Jack Dempsey. And he did it with a lucky punch in the first round. Lesson learned. Flynn was a relatively short but sturdy, tough, and clever light heavyweight who took on the greatest boxers of his era. Then the other guy I just mentioned, Edward Gunboat Smith, a well-known boxer from young Dempsey's era who fought in the West, and he was Irish-American, like many of them. He was also a film actor and later a boxing referee. Gunboat Smith's career record reads like a veritable who's who of the early 20th century boxing scene, facing 12 different Hall of Famers, a combined total of 23 times. In 1918, Dempsey fought in 17 matches, going 15-1 that year with one no decision. One of those fights was with fireman Jim Flynn, who was knocked out by Dempsey, coincidentally, in the first round. A little payback there. Other matches won that year were against light heavyweight champion Batling Levinsky, then Bill Brennan, Fred Fulton, Carl E. Morris, Billy Miskey, heavyweight lefty Jim McKettigan, and Homer Smith. In 1919, he won five consecutive regular bouts by knockout in the first round, as well as a one-round special bout. If you're like me, you probably never heard the names Batling Levinsky, Carl E. Morris, and Billy Miskey because they didn't rise to the top of public consciousness in the years after. But Dempsey remembered Billy Miskey 
and when he was asked who some of the best boxers he ever fought were, Billy Miskey's name would come up on top. In researching this story, I came across one of the best sports stories I've ever read. It's too long for this episode, but I'll share the premise and let you know where it's going. It's from a journalist blog, and it centers around a conversation that took place with four visiting sports fans and Jack Dempsey. Then at age 75, one slow afternoon in Dempsey's bar in New York City. After some discussion over the recent Frazier-Ali fight, one of the visitors asks Dempsey who his bravest opponent was, and Dempsey shares a rare story with him. It's a sports story that'll put a lump in your throat. At least it did mine. I recorded my telling of it, giving full credit to the blogger who asked within the article that it be shared, and added it to my new 1001 Prime Cuts show at my Patreon support page. Our patrons in Tier 1 and 2 have full access to the best of 1001 and Prime Cuts, mostly ad-free, all of them. So head for patreon.com, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com forward slash 1001 Stories Network and check it out and support our 1001 shows. I'll leave a link in the show notes for you. We appreciate your going over there. Appreciate your support. If you're a fan of this show, you'll really enjoy Prime Cuts. Getting back to our story. On July 4th, 1919, 100 years ago, Dempsey and world heavyweight champion Jess Willard met at Toledo for the world title. Pro lightweight fighter Benny Leonard predicted a victory for the 6'1", 187-pound Dempsey, although Willard, known as the Potawatomie Giant, was 6 foot 6 and a half inches tall and weighed 245 pounds, outweighing Dempsey by almost 60 pounds. Ultimately, Willard was knocked down seven times by Dempsey in the first round. This fight was so brutal that Willard's wife had to be escorted out of the stadium in the middle of the match. Here are nine minutes and 40 seconds of the radio broadcast announcing that fight. Jack Dempsey challenges heavyweight champion Jess Willard in one of the most savage confrontations since boxers began to wear gloves. Toledo, Ohio, 4th of July, 1919. Jack Dempsey, the sensational young tiger with amazing speed and two murderous hands. Jess Willard, the biggest man to hold the title under Marcus of Queensbury rule. Jess has the muscles of a wrestler and the sheer power of a raging bull when his temper's aroused. He stands six feet six inches in height and weighs 240 pounds. His great arching chest measures 56 inches. Though half a foot taller and 50 pounds heavier than his rival, the tall pine of the Potawatomi is rated only a five to four favorite over the Manassas Mauler. The 70,000 spectators pack around the ring in the blistering sunshine. The championship belt of gold and silk is paraded for all to see. Symbol of every heavyweight king from John L. to Willard himself. The referee, Ollie Ficord, calls Willard and Dempsey from their corners for instruction. Now you can see what a difference there is in their size. Though a great athlete, the bronze challenger seems almost puny next to the giant he's about to fight. They listen quietly, almost without interest to a story they know by heart. Sweat beating shoulders and forehead. The crowd waits tensely. Who'll win? Willard with his fine jab and smashing uppercut? Or Dempsey with his speed and the best left hook of all time? Round one coming up. The timekeeper jerks his bell cord. Somehow it jams, and Willard doesn't hear the faint sound over the excited yelling. He pauses, looks around, puzzled, doubtful. 
Say, what's going on around her, anyhow? Where's the bell? There it is. So the big fight begins, and Big Jess moves easily into action. The mahogany huge Dempsey circles, moving in and out with cat-footed quickness. The champion wants to keep Jack at long range with his poking left jab, but Dempsey won't let him do it. He's never still for an instant, bobbing and weaving around. It looks like a test of speed against power, and Willard has no chance to get set against Dempsey's speed. At such a pace, there's a lot of missing and a lot of pinching. It's bound to be that way, but it's only a warm-up so far. Each is trying to figure out the other's defense, to open him up, nail him with a punch. The challenger crowds, keeps on crowding. The instant he's in the open, he moves back again. His left whips in tirelessly and often. The blows miss or graze Willard. Dempsey hasn't the range yet. Jess holds whenever he can, but that's Jack's meat. Nobody's strong enough to tie him up for long. And trying to hit him is like trying to hit a sunbeam that moves away. Dempsey's hands are in motion all the time. Willard tries to block with gloves and forearms and elbows, but he's compelled constantly to retreat. What else can he do against the endlessly moving little man? When you're going away, you can't do much damage yourself. A champion is supposed to make the fight, but try as he will, it's far beyond Big Jess. But he hasn't been hurt yet. For all the charging, for all the blows, the tall pine has suffered no injury. He's clever, knows how to handle himself, and in spite of his great size, he moves around quickly and gracefully. No, the little man won't get him. They maneuver around the side of the ring. Now watch, watch. There's that big left, and Willard's down. Up, sure he's up. Dempsey hurt him along the rope, beating away with both hands. There's that left again, and Willard's on the floor for the second time. The champion's dazed, groggy, but he's game. He's up again, the fist drumming on him. And down he goes. Falls along the floor like a wounded animal, crouching with his back half turned as he arrives. The mauler overwhelms him with hysterical burst of fury that sends him to the floor for the fourth time. Dempsey stands over the stricken man, his fist cracked. The instant Willard knees are off the floor, Jack at him again. Jess is wide open, he has absolutely no defense. And he hits the deck again. Courage, just plain courage, instinct, whatever it is, flings him blind and staggering up to his feet. Willard reels around the ring, powerless, with Dempsey pumping right and left into it. Clear across the opposite corner, and there he's taking it again. How can the man stand it? And there he falls, his gloved hand feeling for the rope, trying to hold himself up. Then, painfully, he drags his racked body to a half-erect position. But a right smashes into his side. Other rights crash to the head, and Willard collapses into a sitting position, dazed and helpless, after the most murderous beating a man ever took in the ring. And there's the bell. But no one hears it. Dempsey turns away. He seems doubtful, puzzled. Turns and others rush jubilantly into the rope square. It's all over. The quickest heavyweight knockout on record. Accounts of the fight reported that Willard suffered a broken jaw, broken ribs, several broken teeth, and a number of deep fractures to his facial bones. This aroused suspicion that Dempsey had cheated, with some questioning how the force capable of causing such damage had been transmitted through Dempsey's knuckles without fracturing them. Other reports, however, failed to mention Willard suffered any real injuries. The New York Times account of the fight described severe swelling visible on one side of Willard's face, but did not mention any broken bones. A still photograph of Willard following the fight appears to show discoloration and swelling on his face. Following the match, Willard was quoted as saying, 
Dempsey's a remarkable hitter. It was the first time I had ever been knocked off my feet. I have sent many birds home in the same bruised condition that I'm in now, and now I know how they felt. I sincerely wish Dempsey all the luck possible and hope that he garnishes all the riches that comes with the championship. I've had my fling with the title. I was champion for four years, and I assure you that they'll never have to give a benefit for me. I've invested the money I've made. After being fired by Dempsey, Dempsey's manager Jack Kearns gave an account of the fight years later in the January 20th, 1964 issue of Sports Illustrated that has become known as the Loaded Gloves Theory. In the interview, Kearns claimed to have informed Dempsey that he'd wagered his share of the purse favoring a Dempsey win with a first-round knockout. Kearns further stated he had applied plaster of Paris to the wrappings on the fighter's hands. Obviously illegal. Boxing historian J.J. Johnston said, The films show Willard upon entering the ring, walking over to Dempsey and examining his hands. That, along with an experiment conducted by a boxing magazine designed to reenact the fight, have been noted as proof that Kern's story was false. The Ring magazine founder and editor Nat Fleischer claimed to be present when Dempsey's hands were wrapped, stating, Jack Dempsey had no loaded gloves and no plaster of Paris over his bandages. I watched the proceedings, and the only person who had anything to do with the taping of Jack's hands was DeForest. Kearns had nothing to do with it, so his plaster of Paris story simply can't be true. DeForest himself said that he regarded the stories of Dempsey's gloves being loaded as libel, calling the stories trash, and said he did not apply any foreign substance to them, which he said I can verify since I watched the taping. Sports writer Red Smith in Dempsey's obituary published by the New York Times, was openly dismissive of the loaded gloves claim. Another rumor is that Dempsey used a knuckle duster during the first round, which is another word for brass rings that fit over the fingers near the knuckle, protecting the knuckle in a fight. Some speculated that the object used was a rail spike. In the LA Times, July 3, 1979, Joe Stones, an ex-referee and boxing writer, asserted that in a film taken of the fight, an object on the canvas could be seen after the final knockdown. He further asserted that the object appears to be removed by someone from Dempsey's corner. In the same film, however, Dempsey can be seen at various times during the fight, pushing and holding with Willard with the palm of the glove in question and holding it onto the ropes with both hands, making it next to impossible that he had any foreign object embedded in his glove. And that object resembles a cigar. Following that Willard victory, Jack Dempsey traveled around the country making publicity appearances with circuses, staging exhibitions, and even appearing in a low-budget Hollywood movie. Dempsey did not defend his title again until September 1920 with a fight against Billy Miskey in Benton Harbor, Michigan, where Miskey was knocked out in three rounds. Dempsey's second title defense was in December 1920 against Bill Brennan at Madison Square Garden, New York City. After ten rounds, Brennan was ahead on points, and Dempsey's left ear was bleeding profusely, but Dempsey rebounded to stop Brennan in the 12th round. Dempsey's next defending fight was against French World War I hero Georges Carpentier, a fighter popular on both sides of the Atlantic. The bout was promoted by Tex Rickard and George Bernard Shaw, who claimed that Carpentier was the greatest boxer in the world. The Dempsey-Carpentier contest took place July 2, 1921, as previously mentioned, at Boyle's 30 Acres in Jersey City, New Jersey. A crowd of 91,000 watched the fight. 
Though it was deemed the fight of the century, experts anticipated a one-sided win for Dempsey. And radio pioneer RCA broadcast the fight. Here's a replay of that match, pretty much without the punches. But it still gives you a good impression of the history. Carpentier with the stripe down the side of his trunks. Left, and Dempsey advancing from the right. Carpentier is dead game. Very good boxer. The solid right-hand punch. Dempsey stalking him. Carpentier is the idol of France, known as the Orchid Man. Started fighting in 1907 and has campaigned in every division from flyweight up to heavyweight. That's the end of a good first round. In June of 1913, Carpentier won the European Heavyweight Championship stopping the Britisher Bombardier Billy Wells in four rounds at Belgium. Fighting his first bout in America on October 12, 1920, he stopped battling Levinsky in four rounds to win the World Light Heavyweight Championship at Jersey City. This one of the classic fights of all time. Since he won the title, Dempsey successfully defended the title twice, knocking out Billy Miskey in three rounds at Benton Harbor, Michigan on September 6, 1920, and KOing Billy Brennan in 12 rounds in New York on December 14, 1920. Dempsey, the bigger, the stronger of the two, the heavier hitter. Carpentier, much faster, a very clever boxer, and a good puncher. This is round two of the scheduled 15-rounder for the heavyweight championship of the world. Dempsey with a familiar bobbing and weaving style, looking to get in close. Carpentier trying to fight at long range. Carpentier has a bloody nose, He's tough and quick, is George Carpentier. Dempsey concentrating on the body. This is round three at Boyle's 30 Acres, Jersey City, New Jersey, July 2nd, 1921. More than 90,000 on hand for the first million-dollar gate in boxing history. Dempsey, according to the record, has had 66 professional fights, scoring 45 knockouts, winning six decisions, drawing in five, winning one on a foul. Carpentier has had 93 professional bouts. He scored 44 KOs. He won 30 decisions and drew four times. Dempsey is a great body puncher and infighter. He has a terrific left-hand punch. There he is trying to close in on George Carpentier. Carpentier has a sneaky, fast right hand. Dempsey developed naturally as a fighter with no early training in the rudiments of the sport. It was in the mining and construction camps and saloons that he first gained the opportunity to display his prowess with his fists. He started the fight around Colorado in 1914, was known in those days as Kid Blackie. He was rated as just a rough, tough kid. But here he is, the champion of the world, fighting the orchid man of France, George Carpentier. Carpentier always looking for boxing room, has that good right hand by Carpentier, and lefts and rights to the body as he backed Dempsey against the ropes. Dempsey still advancing on George Carpentier. Carpentier fighting back. Harry Ertel, the referee, separates them. Carpentier's face is pretty well battered now. Dempsey is unmarked. This is the fateful fourth round. Carpentier almost went through the ropes trying to get away from Dempsey. Again he ducks away, does Carpentier. Dempsey is wearing down Carpentier. Dempsey stolidly advancing. Ferocious. Terribly strong. Carpentier now beginning to show signs of weariness. 
That terrific body attack by Dempsey is beginning to take effect. Ripping right hands by Carpentier, but Dempsey is not slow. Another ripping right hand, raising Dempsey's chin. Dempsey keeps coming on. Carpentier trying to hold Dempsey. Carpentier looks weak-kneed now. Throwing that right hand punch with everything he's got. Carpentier may be hurt. He's holding on. Again, almost losing his feet as he threw that right hand punch. And again. Carpentier is battered. Dempsey advancing. Carpentier is in trouble. Dempsey still belting away to the stomach. And down goes Carpentier. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. He's up just in time. And Dempsey goes after him and down he is again. Two, three, four, five, six. He's trying to get up. Eight, nine, ten, and out. And Jack Dempsey remains heavyweight champion of the world. Carpentier had wobbled Dempsey with a hard right in the second round. A reporter at ringside, however, counted 25 punches from Dempsey in a single 31-second exchange soon after he was supposedly injured by the right. Carpentier also broke his thumb in that round, which crippled his chances. He didn't defend his title again until July of 1923 against Tommy Gibbons in Shelby, Montana. And Dempsey won that match as a result of a 15-round decision. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. The last successful title defense for Dempsey was in September 1923 at New York City's Polo Grounds in Dempsey versus Furpo. Attendance was 85,000, with another 20,000 trying to get inside the arena. Furpo was knocked down repeatedly by Dempsey, yet continued to battle back, even knocking Dempsey down twice. On the second occasion, he was floored. Dempsey flew headfirst through the ring ropes, landing on a ringside reporter's typewriter. At this point, he was out of the ring for approximately 14 seconds, less than the 20-second rule for out-of-ring knockouts. Nevertheless, he was helped back into the ring by the writers at ringside. Ultimately, Dempsey beat Argentinian contender Luis Angel Furpo with a second-round KO. The fight was transmitted live by radio to Buenos Aires. Dempsey's heavyweight title-defending fights, exhibition fights, movies, and endorsements made Dempsey one of the richest athletes in the world, putting him on the cover of Time magazine. He didn't defend his title for three years following the Furpo fight. 
there was pressure from the public and the media for Dempsey to defend his title against black contender Harry Wills. Disagreement exists among boxing historians as to whether Dempsey avoided Wills, though Dempsey publicly claimed he was willing to fight him. Instead of continuing to defend his title, Dempsey earned money with boxing exhibitions, product endorsements, and by appearing in films such as the adventure film serial Daredevil Jack. Dempsey also did a lot of traveling, spending, and partying. During his time away from competitive fighting, Dempsey married actress Estelle Taylor in 1925 and fired his longtime trainer-manager Jack Doc Kearns, as we just heard previously. Kearns repeatedly sued Dempsey for large sums of money following his firing. There never was a fight in those days promoted as heavily as the first Dempsey-Tunney fight in September of 1926. Tunney, the Marine and Irishman who dressed in fine clothes, quoted Shakespeare and won all but one of his fights using a combination of hard punching power, speed, and smarts, was matched up against Jack Dempsey, who used speed, punching power, and aggressive domination in the ring to batter his opponents into submission. It was Shakespeare against the Mauler from Manassa, and this promised to be the prize fight of the century. In September of 1926, Dempsey fought the Irish-American and former U.S. Marine Gene Tunney in Philadelphia, a fighter who had only lost once in his career at that time. In spite of his record, Tunney was considered the underdog against Dempsey, whose popularity was at an all-time high. This was possibly because Tunney was considered a light heavyweight, having owned that title twice between 1922 and 1923, and Dempsey was fighting heavyweight. Tunney was a thinker in the ring, a highly technical boxer, as well as a hard hitter, who scored knockouts in two-thirds of his fights. When he met Dempsey in this first of two fights, and this was a heavyweight fight, he'd only lost one bout out of 68. He was never knocked out, and later wrote a book called A Man Must Fight, outlining his theories regarding defensive boxing. Tunney's style was constant movement and prodigious use of a hard left jab. He studied his opponents from the opening bell, typically holding his hands low for greater punching power, and used speed, power, and agility to avoid getting hit. That first match between Jack Dempsey and Gene Tunney was billed as the match of the century, with two very different men going head-to-head. Dempsey was billed as hard-hitting and aggressive, an in-your-face fighter who would come after his opponents hard and beat them senseless every time he got the chance. Tunney, outside the ring, dressed in expensive clothes, was known as an intellectual, and quoted Shakespeare often. To him, the fight was a chess game, combining thinking with power and speed. To Dempsey, the fight was the business to overcome or be overcome. Gene Tunney, whose nickname was the Fighting Marine, was born the son of Mary Lydon from County Mayo, Ireland, and John Tunney from Kiltamog, both of whom had immigrated from Ireland to New York City after the Great Famine. They had seven children. One son was murdered in 1920. Another was an NYPD detective from 1924 to 1951. And Gene obviously became famous as a fighting Marine and for winning both the light heavy title and heavyweight titles. Tunney started boxing while working as a clerk for the Ocean Steamship Company in New York City in 1915. He joined the U.S. Marine Corps during World War I and in 1919 won the light heavyweight championship of the American Expeditionary Force in Paris. 
he returned home to his boxing career and won the U.S. Light Heavyweight Championship in 1922. That year, Tunney suffered his only professional defeat against Harry Greb, but regained the title from Greb in 1923. He knocked out Georges Carpentier in 1924 and subsequently fought as a heavyweight after that. Promoter Tex Rickard wanted to stage the fight originally in Chicago, but dropped that idea when word got out that Al Capone wanted to get involved, and Rickard didn't want any hint of organized crime touching Dempsey's reputation. He then tried to get that first Dempsey vs. Tunney fight at Yankee Stadium on September 16, 1923. But on August 16th, the New York State License Committee said they would not grant Dempsey a license until he complied with the New York State Athletic Commission's order to defend against Harry Wills. On August 18th, Rickard announced that Dempsey would fight Tunney at the Sesquicentennial Stadium, which was an outdoor stadium in Philadelphia, on September 23rd. A crowd of 120,557 showed up. It was the largest paid attendance ever for a boxing match up to that time. The record stood for nearly 67 years. It was broken when 132,000 paid to see Julio Cesar Chavez versus Greg Hogan in Mexico City on February 20th of 1993. Tony Zale versus Billy Pryor attracted a crowd of 135-132, just short of that Chavez fight in Milwaukee on August 16, 1941, but that was a free show. Of the top five most attended boxing matches ever, the two Dempsey-Tunney fights hold number three and number five. The first Dempsey-Tunney match was boxing's third million-dollar gate, bringing in 1,895,733. Dempsey's purse was 770,000, and Tunney's was 200,000, and Dempsey was heavily favored to win. On the morning of that fight, Mike Trent, one of Dempsey's bodyguards, gave the champion a small glass of olive oil, a habit meant to aid digestion. Dempsey suffered something akin to food poisoning from that. Rumors spread that gamblers had paid Trent to put something in Dempsey's olive oil, but nothing was ever substantiated. Many believed racketeer Arnold Rothstein was behind it. Rothstein, who was ringside for the fight, bet 125000 at 4-1 to odds that Tunney would win. Seems like he might have known something. It started to rain as the fighters entered the ring. The decision to move the match to Philadelphia was warmly welcomed by the Philadelphia residents. Boxing was hugely popular in the 1920s, as this episode has shown. As Tunney prepared for his match with Dempsey, a crowd of 2,000 people came just to watch him spar 12 rounds with two workout partners, that just before the fight on August 15, 1926. On that same day, more than 1,000 people paid a dollar each plus tax to watch Dempsey during his workout at Saratoga Springs, New York. The New York Times published 75 articles on the fight preparations in August and September alone and ran a three-tiered front-page headline as well as nine full pages of coverage the day after the fight. While tickets to the fight sold quickly, not everyone approved of the bout being held at the sesquicentennial. One letter to the New York Times argued that the fight was being held to bolster up deficient receipts there and that it was disgraceful and humiliating, or at least it should be, to the American people. But a record number of Americans did not find the fight disgraceful or humiliating at all. 
The match was attended by both the mayor of Philadelphia and the mayor of New York City, as well as Pennsylvania Governor Pinchot. Several other governors from across the country. Secretary of the Navy Curtis D. Wilbur, and many millionaires and members of well-known families. Extra trains brought crowds from New York, New Jersey, Chicago, and dozens of other cities. People around the world eagerly listened for radio and telegraph reports regarding the outcome of that match. After ten hard rounds fought in the pouring rain, Tunney defeated Dempsey to claim the title of world's heavyweight champion. Although the match did not end in a knockout, Tunney is said to have been, quote, a complete master from first bell to last. He outboxed and he outfought Dempsey at every turn, end quote. In meticulous detail, the New York Times summarizes the fight and notes Tunney's strategic and calculated responses to the more rushed and ineffectual charges by Dempsey. One year later, on September 22, 1927, Tunney would successfully defend his title and defeat Dempsey again at Soldier Field in Chicago in a fight that came to be known as the Long Count. Dempsey's career may have begun a downslope at this point, but his popularity only increased. The Dempsey-Tunney boxing match drew incredible crowds to the Philadelphia sesquicentennial and demonstrates the extreme popularity of boxing during the 20s. The Philadelphia Chamber of Commerce estimated that the crowds likely brought an additional $3 million in revenue to that city's businesses through purchases of meals, hotel rooms, train and taxi rides, and other items. The match helped boost attendance while also showing that many members of the public now favored public sporting events to world's fairs as a way to spend their leisure time and money. Tunney won by a 10-round unanimous decision, and his win, as you might expect, was named the Upset of the Decade by The Ring magazine. Following the loss of his heavyweight title, Dempsey contemplated retiring, but then decided to try a comeback. It was during this time period that tragedy struck his family when his brother, John Dempsey, shot his estranged wife, Edna, age 21, and then killed himself in a murder-suicide, leaving behind a two-year-old son, Bruce. Jack Dempsey was called upon to identify the bodies and was said to be emotionally affected deeply by that incident. During a July 21, 1927 fight at Yankee Stadium, Dempsey knocked out future heavyweight champion Jack Sharkey in the seventh round. That fight was an elimination bout for a title shot against Tunney, and it was controversial. Sharkey was beating Dempsey until the end. The fight ended when Sharkey claimed Dempsey had been hitting him below the belt. When Sharkey turned to the referee to complain, he left himself unprotected. Dempsey crashed a left hook onto Sharkey's chin, knocked him out, and the referee counted Sharkey out on a 10 count. The Dempsey-Tunney rematch, as we said earlier, took place in Chicago on September 22, 1927, one day less than a year after losing his title to Tunney. Generating more interest in the Carpentier and Purpo bouts, the fight brought in a record-setting $2 million gate. Reportedly, gangster Al Capone offered to fix the rematch in his favor, but the referee was changed at the last minute to prevent that from happening. Millions around the country listened to the match by radio while hundreds of reporters covered the event. Tunney was paid a record $1 million for the rematch. Today's equivalent in U.S. currency would be about $14,423,000.
Dempsey was losing the fight on points when in the seventh round he knocked Tunney down with a left hook to the chin, then landed several more punches. A new rule instituted at the time of the fight mandated that when a fighter knocked down an opponent, he must immediately go to a neutral corner. Dempsey, however, refused to immediately move to the neutral corner when instructed by the referee. The referee had to escort Dempsey to the neutral corner, which brought Tunney at least an extra five seconds to recover, and every second is precious to a fighter that's down on the mat. Even though the official timekeeper clocked 14 seconds Tunney was down, Tunney took advantage of every second and got up at the referee's count of nine. Here's the playback of that 10-second count. Early on the morning of September 22nd, we see an empty soldier's field, Chicago, Illinois. But just 12 hours later, over 100,000 fans, a live crowd greater than any attendance at any baseball game, watches as the first round of one of boxing's most controversial fights begins. Tunney is wearing the light-colored trunks. The fifth and final million-dollar gate under the promotional reins of Tex Rickard, this fight sets the record that may never be broken. $2,650,000 official gross receipts from a live gate. Champion Gene Tunney will receive a cool $1 million for 40 minutes' work. The fight itself follows a pattern similar to the first match. That is, until the fateful seventh round. Dempsey lands a potent right-hand counter, follows up with a series of seven devastating punches. Tunney goes down for the first time in his career. Dempsey stays near the fallen fighter, but referee Dave Barry points for Jack to move to a neutral corner. Only then does he begin the count. Is Tunney dazed, or is he wisely taking full advantage of these precious extra seconds? Tunney is up at the referee's count of nine. Now, watch that sequence again in freeze action with a stopwatch on the knockdown. Tunney has just hit the canvas, and we start the watch at zero. Jack has forgotten the new rule. The count does not begin until he gets to a neutral corner. Instinctively, Dempsey stays nearby. Five seconds have elapsed before referee Barry is ready to begin the count. Gene looks hurt, dazed as the count begins. But here at the official count of four, when nine seconds have actually elapsed, he is looking at the referee and picks up the numbers. You be the judge. Could Tunney have risen at this point? At the referee's count of nine, but after 14 seconds have elapsed, Gene is getting off the canvas. Then, unabashedly, he gets on a bicycle to stay away from the rampaging Dempsey, who had scored only after 17 rounds of maddening frustration. round, Tunney has fully recovered. In slow motion, watch him get in with a right that drops Dempsey for a one count. Notice here the referee incorrectly will start his count immediately after Jack's knee touches and before Gene could get to a neutral corner. 
Round 10. Tunney has taken complete charge. Bruised and exhausted, Jack Dempsey seems at the verge of being knocked out for the first time in 10 years. There's the bell. The fight is over. Gene Tunney overwhelmingly the winner. But the long count gives sporting buffs something to discuss whenever they get together. Tunney dropped Dempsey for a count of one in round eight and won the final two rounds of the fight, retaining the title of world heavyweight champion on a unanimous decision. Ironically, the neutral corner rule was requested during negotiations by members of the Dempsey camp. That fight has always been known as the long count fight. Dempsey retired from boxing following that rematch, but continued with numerous exhibition bouts. Following retirement, Dempsey became known as a philanthropist. In June of 1932, he sponsored the Ride of Champions Bucking Horse event at Reno, Nevada, with the Dempsey Trophy going to legendary Bronc rider Pete Knight. In 1933, Dempsey was approached by Metro-Golden-Meyer to portray a boxer in the film The Prize Fighter and the Lady, directed by W.S. Van Dyke and co-starring Myrna Loy, who was a big screen star back in the 20s and 30s. The Riviera del Pacifico Cultural and Convention Center in Ensenada, Baja California, Mexico, built in 1930, was a gambling casino supposedly financed by Al Capone and managed by Jack Dempsey. Its clientele included Myrna Loy, Lana Turner, and Dolores Del Rio. In 1935, Dempsey opened Jack Dempsey's Restaurant in New York City on 8th Avenue and 50th Street, across from the 3rd Madison Square Garden. The restaurant's name was later changed to Jack Dempsey's Broadway Restaurant when it relocated to Times Square on Broadway between 49th and 50th Streets. And there it remained until 1974, and from that restaurant sprang many stories, one of which I just added to our Prime Cuts members-only podcast at patreon.com. That link's in the show notes for you, and we hope you take a look at our Patreon page and become a supporter of this show. Dempsey was also co-owner of the Howard Manor in Palm Springs, California. He married four times. His first two wives were Maxine Gates from 1916 to 1919 and Estelle Taylor, married in 1925 but he divorced Taylor in 1930 and married Broadway singer and recent divorcee Hannah Williams in 1933. Dempsey and Williams had two children together and divorced in 1943. He then married Deanna Piatelli, remaining married to her until his death in 1983. That couple had one child, a daughter, whom they adopted together and who would later write a book on Dempsey's life with Piatelli. When the United States entered World War II, Dempsey, now in his 40s, had an opportunity to help, and he reported for duty in June 1942 at Coast Guard Training Station, Manhattan Beach, Brooklyn, New York, where he was assigned as Director of Physical Education. As part of the ongoing war effort, Dempsey made personal appearances at fights, camps, hospitals, and war bond drives. Dempsey was promoted to Lieutenant Commander in December of 1942 and Commander in March of 1944 because he was in the Reserve, then activated. 
1944, Dempsey was assigned to the transport USS Wakefield. And in 1945, he was on board the attack transport USS Arthur Middleton for the invasion of Okinawa. Dempsey also spent time aboard the USS General William Mitchell, where he spent time showing the crew sparring techniques. Dempsey was released from active duty in September of 1945 and received an honorable discharge from the Coast Guard Reserve. He authored a book on boxing, I think we mentioned that before, titled Championship Fighting, Explosive Punching and Aggressive Defense, and it was published in 1950. The book emphasizes knockout power derived from enabling fast motion from one's heavy body weight. After the world-famous Joe Lewis-Max Schmeling fight, Dempsey stated he was glad he never had to face Joe Lewis in the ring. And when Lewis eventually fell on hard times financially, Dempsey served as honorary chairman of the relief fund to assist him. The two Lewis-Schmeling fights took place in the turbulent 30s, and Schmeling was German. The history of those fights deserves an episode, but I'll give it a paragraph here. It was a black Joe Lewis and America versus Hitler's rising Third Reich when the fighters got in the ring. Joe Lewis was an African-American, the next great black fighter after Jack Johnson. Schmeling won the first match by a knockout in round 12, but in the second match, Lewis won through a knockout in the first round. Although the two champions met to create a pugilistic spectacle remarkable on its own terms, the two fights just mentioned came to embody the broader political and social conflict of the times. As the most significant African-American athlete of his age, Lewis was the focal point for African-American pride in the 1930s. Moreover, as a contest between representatives of the U.S. and Nazi Germany during the 30s, the fights came to symbolize the struggle between democracy and fascism. If you think there was some heavy emotion in those crowds that came to see them fight, there was. The crowd was at a fever pitch. And if you're lucky enough to find an audio copy of that fight, you should listen. He won over a lot of fans, both black and white. By the time Jack Dempsey died, May 31, 1983, he had amassed 75 official bouts with 54 wins, 44 of those by knockout, and 6 losses, only one of those a knockout. He had reigned as heavyweight champion from 1922 to 1926. He was known as a hero in his adopted city of New York, and he's still talked about today. One thing I'd like to add after watching video of at least eight of his fights, although he was a tough, aggressive fighter who took every advantage to get to and finish off his opponents after he had dazed them, he also, many times, went to them and helped them up after the fight had been called. They were all professionals, and they all knew each other. And in every boxer interview that I viewed, where they spoke about their opponents, before and after each fight, they found a way to say something good about their opponents. There was honor among them, I guess is what I'm trying to say. In the late 60s and early to mid-70s, which I call the second golden age of boxing, with the rise of that generation of fighters, insults had replaced gentleman conduct. Bragging and chest-beating had become the new norm, and sensationalism became the new way to promote the sport. Studying the films from my layman's point of view, I would say that Dempsey or Tunney could fight with any of those who came later, but the one disadvantage would have been muscle mass that the later fighters were able to develop. My guess, probably due to innovations in training and diet, a science that developed in the late 60s and onward. 
you're invited to comment at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes if you have an opinion on this or any other part of this story. We welcome you there. Without a doubt, Jack Dempsey earned his vaulted place in boxing history, and he's still the subject of conversation today, anytime people get together to discuss boxing. Thanks for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Don't forget to take a look at our Patreon page at P-A-T-R-E-O-N, that's patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Podcast. That's patreon.com forward slash 1001 Stories Podcast. We've set up whole new bonuses for our supporters, one being the podcast Best of 1001, which we feature for all dollar and up supporters, and two being Tier 2 and Tier 3, getting that plus Prime Cuts, a brand new exclusive podcast featuring my favorite short stories that have not been told yet that I'm saving just for Prime Cuts. Tune in and catch that story that I told you about that occurred in Dempsey's Bar in New York City when he was in his mid-70s. That episode's about 45 minutes long, and you'll enjoy it as a great sports story. Meanwhile, let's get to reviews for 1001 Heroes. Here's one that just arrived today. The Best History Podcast. Five stars. 1001 is the best history podcast I have found. I've been listening for over three years, and each episode is meticulously researched and presented with excellent production value. On top of all that, John's a great storyteller. Thanks for all your hard work, John. Much appreciated. That one from Max C, 1967, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Felt I Was There, five stars. I feel like I dropped into some time in history. I love the five-part series on the Titanic. I thought I'd read every story and seen every movie, but I obviously missed one. I felt the fear that the passengers must have felt. The interview with the author of the book on the Titanic menu was a new point of view as well. I've been listening for a year now. That one from Frost Storm 1017, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, Great History, Five Stars. Absolutely the best historical storytelling. This is my go-to podcast. Fun, interesting, and educational. John really gets it right. Even the ads are fun to listen to, and there are no interruptions during the stories. Chris M. 5150, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, five stars. Title, 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. Oh my gosh, to critics, listen to something else. Who cares about how Oregon is pronounced, or if the story has fishing, hunting, or some other such you don't want to hear about? Go listen to Nighttime News or Nighttime Entertainment. This band's providing a service of entertainment, not a professionally produced, written, directed, sponsored piece of garbage. We have freedom of choice and variety. Not every program needs to be the way you expert critics think. That one from Zingin' Around, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you, Zingin' Around. I couldn't have said it better myself. And this one, enjoyable and informative. I love that you can hear the storyteller's passion and excitement, not to mention true love for history, in each and every podcast. Fun for folks whose minds love history, trivia, and the trivia behind the trivia. Sarah Werner, Apple Podcast, U.S. Thank you all so very, very, very much for taking the time to send us these reviews for 1001 Heroes and our other shows, which you send reviews to as well. In fact, I'll tell you what, most recent for 1001 Stories for the Road. 
Excellent. Five stars. All the 1001 podcasts provide excellent entertainment. They add so much to a solo walk and pass the time when engaged in yard work. Thank you for hours of classic literature read in a most pleasing way. That one from Walker One Son, Apple Podcast, U.S. And this one, loyal listener, five stars. Mr. Hagedorn does an excellent job retelling some wonderful stories. I listen every day during my 55-minute commute to and from work. I love the American history tales, old whaling tales, and all the Jack London stories. Keep it up, sir. Your love for the stories you tell really shines through in your enthusiasm and genuine joy. And that one from Seth the Land Surveyor at Apple Podcast U.S. And these brand new ones for 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales. Great. Five stars. Really enjoy this podcast. Thanks, guys. I to the G, Apple Podcast, Ireland. And this one, five stars. Great listening. I enjoy all the 1001 podcasts. Unfortunately, I can listen faster than you can record. Have you considered the short stories of P.C. Wren? He's best known for his novel, Beau Jest, but he wrote a lot of short stories as well, mostly about the colonial days of the French Foreign Legion. This might make a good addition to your repertoire. And that one from John the Chicken Doctor, Apple Podcast, U.S. And yes, John, I did check out P.C. Wren, and he's, a, he's an excellent writer. I would love to include his short stories. Right now, I cannot find any in the public domain, but that might just be me. If any of you are aware of any of P.C. Wren, W-R-E-N, uh, short stories in the public domain, please let me know. I'd appreciate it. And my email, as most of you know, is 1001storiespodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for that review, John. I appreciate it. And this one for 1001 Radio Days. No new TV programs here. Five stars. Television. New shows are a waste of time. No morals. No morals. Political undertones. Lazy people involved in everyone else's business. No more at my house. I know several people turning up the sitcom trash and news programs with seven to nine commercials every five minutes. These old radio programs are interesting to listen to and allow me to imagine being there in the time and the place of the program. If I don't like one, I can move to the next. Reminds me of laying under my grandmother's table evenings listening with my grandparents years before TV. And that one, Apple Podcast US. Thanks for the reviews you guys send for all of our shows. We appreciate it very, very, very much. Hope you enjoyed this episode on Jack Dempsey. We've got a lot of stuff coming up, so be sure to tune in next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, and we'll see you then. Bye-bye.